Welcome to Main Engine Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and we've got a guest with us today. We have Ryan McDevitt, who is the CEO of Benchmark Space Systems. They are a company building propulsion systems. They've also come up with a couple new business model ideas for what propulsion companies can offer to their customers. Uh, And interestingly, they've been partnering with a company called OrbitFab, who is going to be building fuel depots in space, actually have launched their first one. And Benchmark is going to be uh, putting one of their refueling ports on every one of their thrusters uh, for future customers to be able to refuel, uh, leaning into the idea that this will be a ubiquitous service one day. So I'm really excited to talk to Ryan about all of that and pick his brain on some things that I've had on my list for a while about Benchmark and their partnership with OrbitFab in particular. But before we give him a call, I want to say thank you to everyone out there who supports Main Engine Cutoff over at mainenginecutoff.com slash support. There are 724 of you supporting the show every single month, and that includes 41 executive producers who produce this episode of Main Engine Cutoff. Thanks to Brandon, Simon, Lauren, Melissa, Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Ryan, Donald, Lee, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, Moritz, Joel, Jan, David, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, David Ashnot, Frank, Julian, and Lars from Agile Space, Tommy, Matt, the Astrogators at SEE, Chris, Aegis Trade Law, Fred, Haymonth, Dawn Aerospace, and seven anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for making this show possible. And if you want to join that crew of supporters and also get an entire other podcast I do called Miko Headlines in your feed every single week, head over to manageandcutoff.com slash support, sign up at the $3 a month or more level, and you'll get a show every weekend where I run through all the stories of the week, give you some thoughts on them, and uh, keep you up to date on the news. So it's a great way to stay up to date and support the show. And once again, thank you all so much. And without further ado, let's give Ryan a call. Ryan, welcome to Main Engine Cutoff. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. We have uh, had a very long asynchronous email chain to try to get you on the show. Uh, it's been a busy little while for you. Can you just give us an update on the last couple months and what Benchmark's been up to? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been uh, crazy for sure. So um, this year has been a big one for us. Um, first flight hardware in space, uh, supporting customer missions. So getting those up, uh, helping to support those customers, getting to test that out. And while we're doing that, the team is also hard at work on the next missions, next hardware that's going up uh, end of this year into uh, 2022. So lots of stuff going on. That's always good to have hardware in process, flying, soon to be flying. That's a fun place to be for so many companies that are uh, not doing a lot with hardware at the moment. That's like, I'm sure that feels good for you. Yeah, it's, and it's such a great transition. It's a great culmination of all of the stuff that comes before it, all the years of R&D, you know, kind of bringing on the team, getting that all there. Um, it's also obviously only the very first step in a, a much longer process. So it's both something to celebrate and also a reminder, okay, that the real race starts now. I'd love to hear about some of the background that you mentioned there. Uh, can you give us a little pitch on where things have been, where it started with Benchmark and, and bring us up to date on the storyline today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Benchmark got started in 2017 um, to commercialize my PhD research. So I was a um, PhD student at the University of Vermont, uh, working on a NASA funded project to develop small satellite propulsion. Specifically, we were focused on ways to build chemical propulsion that was less expensive, faster to build, used non-toxic or green propellants. And so 
when I started in 2009, not really a big market for it. It was really a NASA thing. Maybe there'd be something um, someday. But in that time frame between 2009 and when I graduated in 2014, you start to see companies popping up that are using CubeSats and SmallSats as the backbone of their business model. And so we were able to kind of take that. Uh, it took a few years, percolated on a little bit, and then in 2017, started the company proper. Um, so that's how we got going. Um, fast forward a few years to 2020 and, and pretty transformational uh, moment in the company's history. Um, we acquired a company out of California called Tesseract Space. Um, they were working on um, small satellite propulsion as well, um, had some great technology. Benchmark was focused on the smallest end of the market. Tesseract was focused on the medium and large size um, of the market, but both uh, same vision from their founders and what we were working on. Uh, how can we make this better for the ecosystem? How can we use non-toxic propellants? We were able to combine those two technologies um, and those two companies really bring everything together. And that's what helped us get our fl first flight hardware into space only six months after, uh, or sh sorry, we shipped the hardware only six months after um, the companies came together. So uh, that's kind of where we've been. Today, we're uh, about 35 full-time employees, um, both out in California and here in Vermont, where the headquarters are. Um, and we're heading towards 50, 55 over the next year. That's a decent size. That's yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned green propellants, which has been a topic, like you said, a very popular topic in the last couple sure. of years. Uh, I feel like the lifespan of the show that I've done, it's been a topic with various weirdly named green propellants out there yeah, you know there's yeah. like afm 315 or something like that there's yep. a lot of these new ones that are coming about I'd, I'd love to hear your take on all the different varieties of of hydrazine alternatives you know the main thing that you hear is that they're easier to work with they are the constraints around loading them and shipping them is is much less um but i'd love to hear from you what you chose why you chose that over the other options and you know how everything trades out there yeah, absolutely. So we talk about this when we talk with investors or, or customers that maybe aren't as educated on the topic. We use the word green because that's kind of what the industry uses. But when we talk about it, um, the, the focus isn't on environmentally friendly, like you might think about on Earth, um, although that's often true. Um, really, what we're talking about is easier to handle, non-toxic. And, and that translates to the customer for lower total cost of ownership. Um, the propellant should be less expensive. It's easier to handle. So you don't need as much infrastructure to handle it. Um, the materials that you're working with in terms of building the hardware should be less expensive, all of that. So, so that's kind of the, the core tenets of what we were looking at and why we selected at Benchmark and, and the team at Tesseract, why they'd selected to work with green propellants. Now, specifically, the two companies um, and now together going forward, we use um, uh, hydrogen peroxide, high test peroxide, HTP, as um, kind of the, the core infrastructure there. Um, green propellant you know, breaks down into water and oxygen, um, safe to handle using uh, appropriate safety precautions, right? Rubber gloves, uh, eye, uh, eye protection, et cetera. Um, the big thing for us there is it's a high performing propellant that can be synthesized from water, which means if you look to the future in, you know, in situ resource utilization, asteroid mining, lunar mining, et cetera, you can make HTP out of water. Um, and that gives us kind of a, an infrastructure for the future, right? So we're, we're doing what makes sense now. We're building products that are performance competitive with anything on the market using HTP. But we also see this as kind of the, the, the uh, long tail here is being able to mine it in other places. So how does that compare to some of the more exotically named 
and maybe exotically sourced uh, alternatives that are out there. They've been, you know, there was a couple of flight tests recently flying some different varieties. So yeah. what's the what's the main thing that we should take away as the differences between them all? Yeah, so, you know, the big things, the big two on the market that people talk about, LMP103S, which comes out of Europe, um, and then AFM315E, which has been renamed to Ascent. So you'll see Ascent-based thrusters. Better name. And, Better name. <laughs> yeah, right. A little bit easier. It rolls off the tongue a little easier. Um, so, you know, GPIM, uh, Green Propellant Infusion Mission, um, Ball Aerospace um, with Aerojet Rocketdyne tested that uh, the uh, Ascent um, last year and successful test. I guess what I would say when we look at it and um, I will, I'll, you know, detour here to say that we work with Ascent. We're on an Air Force funded project um, to kind of study Ascent and see how it works with our thrusters. We do see it as being a very interesting um, propellant. It's very high performance. Um, it's a mono propellant. So it's a little bit easier to work with um, in that sense. Um, it is challenging to work with. And I think everyone in the industry who's familiar would agree with that. It has a very high um, flame temperature, has a very high ignition temperature. So it drives a lot of your design choices. It's not appropriate for every mission. Um, it's expensive. The, 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 the propellant itself is expensive, but it's also expensive to work with. Um, so it really will come down to for specific missions where performance is probably the, you know, is the top criteria. Um, you might want to be in a position where LMP-103S or um, Ascent are, are kind of driving you in that direction. What we have and what we really focus on is that sweet spot of performance per dollar, you know, performance per kilogram. And that's that the products that we're building are kind of unmatched in that specific area. And fortunately, that's a, a pretty meaty chunk of the uh, the market is interested in that. In terms of some of the technical aspects here, um, I feel like people that have heard the word peroxide probably have heard the word de decomposition nearby. Uh, and I'm curious what constraints that puts on your designs, how you manage that uh, on any given mission. Maybe you can explain a little bit more for people that haven't heard those two words close together. Yeah, absolutely. So hydrogen peroxide, one of the challenges with it is that it does spontaneously decompose. And so if you've ever had a bottle that you bought at the grocery store of 3% peroxide and you go to use it two years later to clean a cut and it doesn't do anything, that's because it's continuously decomposing. It goes flat um, like a like a bad Coke. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's always flat when you need it most, right? Um, and so with high test peroxide, so generally speaking, 85% or above, um, we use 90% um, as our primary. Uh, there are a couple things to know. So one, it decomposes slower at higher concentrations. Um, so it's a little more stable at higher concentrations. Um, that benefits us with the stuff that we're doing. The second thing I would call out here is a lot of the data and a lot of the experience that the aerospace industry has around hydrogen peroxide comes from um, the 50s and 60s. And we've actually developed um, for, for other applications, primarily for um, silicon ma manufacturing and semiconductor manufacturing, better peroxide um, that's cleaner, has fewer additives, um, and breaks down slower. So we have demonstrated in our facility, and our supplier has demonstrated at their facility, um, decomposition rates that are orders of magnitude lower than what you would find published in the literature on aerospace grade from the 50s and 60s. And, and then the, the third thing I would say is it really just takes a mindset of designing your spacecraft to um, 
be prepared for some level of decomposition and taking advantage of that. So we use that decomposition, it's creating oxygen, which helps to pressurize our system. So we actually need to carry less pressure in because we know that that's going to be there. So it's kind of like leaning and taking a weakness and leaning into it a little bit and saying, no, actually, we can turn this into a strength where we can be more volume or mass competitive. Um, So those are the things that we think about and we've been able to demonstrate. And when we can tell that story to customers, they get excited about it. And it's why we've been selected for some of the missions we're on. So is that the main limitation on the on-orbit life of your systems? Or are there other components that, um, you know, might limit how long something can be operational? I think like most companies, we design our systems to um, kind of last exactly as long as they need to, plus a little bit of margin. Um, you know, I think maybe we'll get a chance to talk about refueling in a, a later in the, the conversation. Um, so that that will change the dynamics a little bit. But right now, you know, we go up, we have a certain amount of propellant on board. And so all of the rest of our system is designed to make sure that all that propellant gets used um, appropriately. Probably the, the place that would... Uh, be the most fragile besides the propellant is the catalyst bed for the thrusters. Um, those can be designed to have very long lifetimes, but you're carrying catalysts that you don't need. So you, you kind of right size it. You're scaling that with what the actual mission is. Exactly. So what is that general time frame uh, for some of the stuff that is on your plate at the moment? Yeah, it goes all the way from, you know, kind of a uh, thousand seconds of, of throughput. So, you know, th- in practice, the customers are using these to do um, sometimes small maneuvers, right? They're only firing for five or 10 seconds at a time. Um, other missions might require, you know, 10 minutes of continuous burn. So um, the the total lifetime could be years of how long they're going to be using this thing. But in terms of throughput, you know, it's anywhere from, you know, 1,000 seconds up to, you know, 20,000 seconds on a thruster. Um, and there are exotic deep space missions that we're kind of working with customers on where they're going to want 50,000 plus seconds um, per thruster. So it uh, could be a very long lifetime. Yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the missions that you are working on now. You, um, I think the partnership you had with Spaceflight, that is now up there, right? That is, I'm current on that, or is this, that the one this, coming up pretty soon? That's the one coming okay. up, yep. That, I'm getting so my Spaceflight, the they're flying too many things, I'm getting them all mixed <laughs> up. That's so much, right? So what, yeah. let's hear about that one, because that's uh, something, we've had a couple of people from Spaceflight on recently, so I feel like this is a good uh, bookend to that conversation with them. Yeah, so uh, early stages, I can't say too, too much other than we're supporting um, by building the propulsion system for um, their LTC line of um, their Sherpa space vehicle, their orbital transfer uh, vehicle. And so um, we'll be supplying those. Um, th- there's been some, some press. They've got one coming up soon. Um, and, and we're not quite ready to, to break the press release here. So I, I'll, I'll let them kind of talk more about that. But that's going up in the near future. We'll be supporting with um, that orbital transfer vehicle um, chemical propulsion system. There are a couple more coming down the pipeline that uh, we'll be supporting there as well. So it's mostly Earth orbit missions for now, but it sounds like longer term, you're looking towards moon and Mars, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's something, you know, we're working with customers on um, propulsion systems that are um, intended for the moon. Um, I can't say who yet, but we will we'll have we stuff going some, around. We could draw some squiggly lines. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff going to the moon. There's a lot of stuff going to the moon, right? Exactly. And so, um, yeah, we're excited about that. um, Taking the technology that we have and applying it for um, a really exciting mission, which is, you know, it's the the team is so excited about that. That's why you get into this, right? I mean, low earth orbit is fun and there's a lot of money to be made there. um, But when you get to tell someone, you know, Hey, come join us and we're going to go to the moon together. It's just, it's a whole different, pretty pretty motivating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
Um, you've announced recently this idea of mobility as a service, and um, I I would love to hear what that means and what it would mean for the industry if this kind of thing caught on. Yeah, absolutely. So when we got into this business back in 2017, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there were a couple of wrong assumptions that we made. And I don't think we're the only people, but um, the, the two wrong assumptions that we made um, were that CubeSats were going to be the dominant form factor. 3U to 6U CubeSats. And so if we had a killer CubeSat propulsion system, that would be the thing. Um, I think what we've really seen, and most other people seem to have seen the same thing, is it kind of got small and now it's getting big again, right? And so um, there's that part of it. And the second part that we kind of assumed is that we would be primarily selling to um, uh, NASA, the Air Force, uh, you know, Boeing and Lockheed or companies like that. The What's old steadies. The old steadies, right? And and the important part there is they know how to buy propulsion, right? They've been doing this for decades. They know how to send out um, a request for proposal that has every specific detail, very you know carefully crafted, and they're going to get back exactly the right thing. What we've seen over the past couple of years is that there has been this awesome truly inspiring influx of new companies coming into the market with really innovative technologies and business models, but maybe not as much space background. And so we started to get these RFPs that were much more like, hey, I'm launching on a SpaceX on this date, and my satellite needs to be at this altitude by this date. What do, what can you do for me? That's a, that's a big open-ended question, right? Um, because that it could be, oh, well, I'm going to build you a propulsion system, or it could be, oh, I'm going to build you a propulsion system, but I'm also going to help you coordinate with an orbital transfer vehicle, and they're going to take you part of the way. And, oh, maybe I'm going to help you get there, but I'm going to also help you refuel your spacecraft over the lifetime, so you don't need as big a propellant tank, you need a smaller tank. And, oh, we need to make sure that you comply with all the regulatory uh, pieces, including coming down at end of life. So we could help you with that. We could help you pair with some of the active debris removal companies, right? We could, there, there are all these services and pieces that are coming together. And if you're new to the industry, and even if you've been around for a while, there's so much going on, you might not be familiar with all of that. Well, we need to be the mobility experts at Benchmark. Yesterday, we build chemical propulsion systems. We've got a good business doing that. But what we offer to the customer is bigger than just the widget on the shelf, right? It is the, it's the true, we're going to solve your mobility problem. And so that's kind of the genesis of this idea of mobility as a service, taking away, hey, we're going to build you this box that you know exactly what you want, and really thinking about what is the core question the customer is asking, and it's how do I move around in space? How do I accomplish my mission? And I want to do that for the least amount of money, right? I want the fewest, uh, you know, uh, amount of technical challenges, the least technical risk. That's really what they're asking for. And so we can help to solve that. And so we see it as kind of, there, there are two parts to the story. So one is the combination of hardware, software, and services that allow us to um, help the customer. And then the second is, how can we think of innovative business models that support what they're doing. And so an example of that is earlier this year, um, we signed our first mobility as a service contract with a company. They're an on-orbit inspection company. Um, so they're going to fly around and, and do um, inspection for, it could be insurance, it could be for you know a constellation owner, whatever the case may be. They want to know what's going on. This satellite's going to fly over. Well, that Could be company, trying to they, find Zuma. If someone yeah. wanted to go out and look for Zuma, we can do a <laughs> right. ghost hunt for Zuma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Just be looking around. So they... 
they, one of the things that they came to us and they said when they, they said, well, we, we need propulsion because you got to be able to go to where the, um, the uh, article in question is. But they didn't know ahead of time or they don't know ahead of time exactly how much propellant they need, right? They couldn't write us an RFP that's like, give us this much total impulse or this much delta V. And so what we worked on with Even them, that because they might be tasked with a different thing that they didn't plan for once they are on orbit. Exactly, right. They, they don't know ahead of time exactly which satellites they're going to have to go inspect. And so what we set up with them is what we call our delta V on demand service. So they're paying a small amount for the hardware on board. Um, to make sure that they've, you know, they've got the hardware, and then they pay us as they use the delta V, the the propellant, and in the um, spacecraft. Now that does a couple of things. So one, they don't have to pay all up front uh, for that propellant, and and two, that means that they're paying when they're getting paid, right? So that when they generate revenue, they can pay us. We think that that could be a really useful business model for a lot of companies, right, where they don't necessarily know ahead of time in a similar way. So that's the Delta V on demand. There's also the kind of idea of like a subscription propulsion service where let's say you've got um, a constellation, Internet of Things constellation. You're billing your customers on a monthly basis. Wouldn't you like to pay for your satellites or some you know fraction of your satellites on a monthly basis as that revenue is coming in? And so we can help them kind of realize that. So it's, it's those two parts, those two things that come together from mobility as a service, right? It's like combining of the components and the software, creating the interface to make all of this possible. And then it's applying that to this business model that is uh, supportive of the new companies that are coming online. And that's the thing that we get really excited about. Yeah, the second one makes a ton of sense in terms of like you're, you're managing their cash flow for them, essentially. And, and that yeah, right. helps startup, you know, helps them get their, their hardware sooner and get it on orbit and then start working. Uh, and then I suppose if on on the worst case scenario that something happens to the satellite, would hopefully the insurance payment cover paying for the system that that you sent their way? How does that how would yeah, that work? And like the, in the bad scenarios that we'd never like to think about. Right. So I mean, the way that we've got the business model set up, there are a couple of parts to it. So there's you know some kind of initial payment or, or down payment that kind of covers um, a lot of it, and then we're kind of uh, depending on the customer how many satellites they're going to have. We're kind of uh, you know, spreading the the cost or the risk across all of those satellites. So, um, if any one gets lost, but the rest of the constellation is still functional, um, we're doing okay. They're probably doing okay, and uh, yeah, that's the plan. Now, in the first part of the mobility as a service, I'm trying to get my head around your positioning of it, right? Because for a company like Spaceflight, um, and there's others out there that that are similarly offering you know shuttling services around space. I think that that's a pretty straightforward case for them to make to their customers or or in the inverse, that their customers know to go to them for that sort of service. Um, as someone who is right now primarily providing propulsion systems, how do, how do you find that uh, communication? Or is it more of a fact that these people are already talking to you about propulsion and you're expanding their mindset about what you can provide them? So they might be attracted because your engines or their, your thrusters look like what they need. Um, but you're then able to offer them a little bit more than they were expecting. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, like, these seem like two complementary, but but not necessarily coexisting business models uh, for a company, especially a company of, you know, 35 to 50 people. Sure. Yeah. You, so you nailed it with the second um, piece here. We get in front of customers relatively early on in the process because the decision about what propulsion system you're going to use 
truly changes what that spacecraft is going to look like. If you're going to have electric propulsion on board, you need room for your power processing unit. You might need larger solar panels, larger batteries, et cetera. If you're going to use chemical, you're going to need more room for your storage tank, all these different things. And so we're talking to um, you know, all these customers really early on in their design process, helping them kind of make that selection. So the step one is we want to be able to be kind of that one-stop shop for, for propulsion. Um, right now, our expertise is on chemical propulsion. Um, you know, we have some kind of partnerships and support in the works that we'll be able to help um, identify. If we don't have the right product, we're going to help you get the right product in there. And it can all be supported by kind of our software and um, avionics layer uh, that'll be common. So if, you, if this mission needs a you know, chemical, but that mission needs electric, you're still working with the same interface, you're familiar with it. So that's kind of step one. That gets us in front of them. But then the, the next part, and this is dependent on the ecosystem, the in-space ecosystem continuing to develop. So this doesn't exist today, and I'm aware of that, but I also am uh, very bullish that it will be there. Think about how differently you would design a chemical propulsion system if you knew that you could refuel every six months, every two years, whatever that looked like, right? So if there were gas stations up there, how would you how would you design your system differently? If you knew that you could get an orbital transfer vehicle or a tug that could come move you around um, when you needed for large, you know, kind of delta B maneuvers, how differently would you design your propulsion system? If you knew that there was a safety net of um, space sweepers, active debris removal, and so you didn't have to use every, you know, you didn't have to save 10% of your propellant um, to deorbit yourself because you have that safety net. How would you design your, your system differently? And if you look at the kind of regulatory and insurance side of things, how would you interact with those agencies if you knew that you had all of this kind of put together? And so when we, that's what we talk about. Like when we talk about like pulling this all, like going and offering kind of mission design support and uh, spacecraft design support that says, hey, I know you've always bought propulsion this way, but actually, if you look at all of these pieces together, this whole ecosystem, you could do this different thing. It, it really could change a lot of how people are doing things. And they're not going to just do that that that's not an easy place to be that there's so much going on and that's our job that's where we come in and so that's kind of how i think about it we're we're already talking to those customers hopefully we're getting uh, you know in on the strength of they like our propulsion or they think it's at least interesting and now how can we kind of nudge them that last little bit as this ecosystem develops so you're more using the the fact that you are an early partner for many people as a leverage point to then show your expertise make that additional communicate or connection with them um, and then I, I guess the other part would be like, do you see Benchmark getting into a last mile tug sort of system in the future where you would actually have your own rather than, you know, riding sharing on someone else that you would have your own tug that could take a couple of payloads, drop them off. Is that something that you see Benchmark providing? So we've got some great partnerships with uh, people in the industry that do that part of the the business. And so we're really excited to support and to be the, potentially that kind of channel partner out in front of that, talking to those customers and helping to kind of steer towards that part of it. Um, so uh, I'll say no. Okay, gotcha. Uh, we're, ha- we're, we're happy with uh, the, the uh, ecosystem that we're part of. So the way that spaceflight, just to keep using them as an example, the way that spaceflight partners with launch providers you're trying to be the space flight of space flights. Yeah, right. Exactly. Kind where of helping where you're to, fitting yeah. them in. You're, you're making right. your customers more efficient when they're on orbit and That's leveraging right. this whole industry. So that leaves us pretty, pretty easily in here to the partnership that you have with Orbit Fab yeah. uh, on, on fuel depots in space. And this is, they are developing tankers uh, that are going to be in various spots. They have one on orbit now, right? 
Did I get yep. my things messed up again? Yep. No, that yep. one's That's on right. orbit. They just yep. announced they're going to have one in geostationary orbit. Um, and you are going to be bundling their fuel port, essentially, with all of your thrust thrusters that, that make it to orbit eventually. Did I get all the details right there? That's correct. Yep. That's the that's the path forward. So you you kind of touched on this a second ago, where you're looking into the future, um, or maybe I should start from a different spot, that there's a lot of people out there today that say refueling satellites doesn't make a lot of sense because at that point in time, it's cheaper to launch a new one. And that mindset to me, I understand for where we are at at the moment, but I think I lean towards your direction of looking into the far future and seeing fuel depots as ubiquitous and saying, what can I do at that point? And it seems like that's the way that you're you're kind of leaning into this, saying, we're going to put a lot of these ports out there so that we solve at least one end of the, well, X doesn't exist, so Y doesn't need to either uh, equation. And I love that mindset, and I would love to hear you expand on why you're going that way and why OrbitFab is particularly interesting. Yeah. So I don't want to fall into the um, kind of false narrative around Starship that I see in some places that like only Starship is going to change everything. There will only However, be one spaceship there, ever. <laughs> there can only be one spaceship ever. However, I do think if you look at the kind of economics of what Starship is doing, it's it's interesting to me because it's it's kind of it's driving both of these stories, right? So on the one hand, the falling launch cost does drive towards disposable if, if launch is cheap enough why do i care if my satellite's refuelable right like that there are people who kind of like fall into that camp and, and i understand from an economic point of view how that might look the flip side of it is if launch is cheap enough it's really easy to get things like commodities like propellant into space right like that that's kind of how this whole thing works and what we're seeing is just satellites or actually, they're com- they're getting more expensive again, and I don't know if it's really obvious, but you know, we talked about like they're getting bigger, um, but they're also getting much more. The, the business models that are coming out today, um, it's not enough to just put a camera on your um, spacecraft, right? That uh, there are companies that do. Planet does that, like they're they're the best at that, right? They're, they're crushing it. Why am I going to com- how am I going to compete with Planet just by putting a camera on? But where I might be able to compete is uh, I came out of a university or an R and D lab, and I invented the next new best sensor for you know methane or something that that one's been done but you you know what i mean right something like that but that's more expensive than just putting a camera on there so this idea that satellites are just going to be infinitely disposable i I just don't see it right you see some of these really awesome um synthetic aperture radar um, constellations that's not cheap they they don't want those things to just burn up even if they could launch them inexpensively they're not cheap to manufacture well you're getting on i mean this is the same logic that like iPhones should cost $5 today, right? Like they started and they were $1,000. They were $200 for a little bit. And then now they're back to $1,300 because the cameras are amazing. And there's like optical image stabilization. So you you use the the dropping costs elsewhere to push your uh, capabilities into the future, which keeps it at a certain baseline. Exactly. Exactly. Right. This idea that satellites are just going to get super cheap. It just, no, falling launch costs means that we can put more money into other things. We can do more um, interesting things. So that's it. And it also exactly. makes the fact that your components are getting more expensive. If launch and fuel are cheap enough, those eventually become the most expensive thing. Whereas right well, now they are not the most expensive thing. So we lean towards that direction. But if everything works out, they should be the most expensive thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so s- maybe what'll happen is you'll, you'll, you know, continue to see this bifurcation of really cheap disposable satellites, but our customers in many cases have really, 
uh, interesting, expensive satellites. They need them to stay up for a long time to get the ROI um, that they need. And if there were enough fueling stations up there that we could reliably count on that. And that's what Orbit Fab is doing, right? They they push them forward. They just got their funding from Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. They are like, you know, industry leaders in this. Um, and we're big believers. And obviously we're, we're working with them. So if there are enough stations up there, you can build your satellite knowing that that's the case. And that really does kind of change things. So, so that's where we see the future being. Um, as far as the reason that we work with OrbitFab, there are kind of two parts here that we're really um, like about them and, and kind of see eye to eye on. So one, you know, they've announced, I think relatively recently, you know, a big part of what they're doing is trying to make this into an industry standard. Their, their goal is not to make money off of that port. Um, so, you know, we could be building it with them, you know, other people could be building that port into, into their spacecraft. They're, you know, they want to be on the commodities. They want to be the gas station company, right? Not the fuel port company. Um, and, and we like that because it's going to take some amount of standardization. It, it, you know, we can't, like, it, you know, driving around the country wouldn't make sense if you only had, you know, every gas station had a different port, right? You have to kind of have some standardization. The other thing is that they share a vision. They put out papers about this and we've talked to them about this for a long time that water is, you know, the new oil, right? Like that, they, they didn't coin that phrase. Other people have said it, but water is the oil of the ecosystem and hydrogen peroxide, which can be synthesized from water um, is a very effective uh, monopropellant and oxidizer for bipropellant systems. And so, you know, when they were thinking about what is the first station that we're going to put up, what is the thing that we're going to demonstrate on it was hydrogen peroxide because they share that vision with us. And so great partnership. We're really excited for the work that they're doing. Um, you know, th they're going to do lots of stuff that, uh, that they are going to support other propellants as well. Uh, the geo is hydrazine. They're going to do xenon. They're going to do other things as well, but over the long term, you know, we think that they're going to be the right backbone, right partner for us. Heading in a similar direction, you know, complementary visions, that kind of thing. Exactly. Now the, the port itself, um, you know, I obviously mentioned there's a couple different propellants they're using, and that's the same port for everything. It's the same standard, I guess. There would be maybe some differences uh, with the actual propellants themselves, but the interface is, is common across all of those? Yeah, the interface is common. Uh, they have a low-pressure version for liquids and a high-pressure version for gas. See, this is the thing that I think we also, like, this is the one that's going to take a bit to shake out, but it is really something that, that is key before we get to ubiquitous fuel depots. Well, you got to be able to use them, you know, and, and yeah. we're seeing a similar thing now on, on Earth, right? With like, you know, electric vehicle charging yeah. stations and stuff like that. But um, so it's we got some equivalent, but it's obviously a longer term thing with just the length of time that space takes. So it's yeah, cool it's to know, you know, it, it makes a lot more sense when you put it in context with your vision for being more than just a propulsion company. You know, it, it seems directly in line with with what you've got on your mind for the future. Yeah, I, thank you. I, there's definitely some shakeout that's going to happen. I think the the magic in and people are working on this is you know multi-mode um, propulsion systems. So uh, a common propellant that could drive both you know EP and CP engines. You know that is down the road and and we haven't quite cracked that uh, nut yet. But uh, if we can start to standardize around some EP propellants and uh, some CP propellants, I think we could be in a, a pretty good spot. Now, in terms of the actual operations there, this might be something more that I should get people from OrbitFab on to talk about. But <laughs> sure. I'm curious about, um, you know, they have these depots in space. For your customers, would they have to make their way over to those depots? Do you think there would be 
the de- depot's stationary, but there would be some vehicle that is the go-between, uh, or do the depots themselves have rendezvous and proximity operations capabilities to, to go up to your customer satellites? Yeah, so it's there, there are a couple of different models that are developing around that. Um, I think the because different spacecraft will have different capabilities. So not every spacecraft is going to have the uh, rendezvous and proximity operations capability, the RPO capability to um, dock with the fueling station. And so in that case, uh, OrbitFab is looking at doing tenders, right? That would go and and deliver the fuel specifically. Um, But they are also preparing for, and and the fuel stations have the capability to do the um, docking directly with a spacecraft that is equipped. So we build um, RPO kits for spacecraft. So the, the, all the thrusters necessary um, that can tie in with the software, we, we do the, um, the GNC algorithms and everything to support that. So we can support a customer that wants to be able to direct, dock directly with a fuel depot, but OrbitFab also has part of their business model. We'll be building tenders or ha- having, having a company built for them is my guess, but um, tenders to do um, that delivery. Now, are these uh, the Rafty port, right? Rafty is yep. the way to, I should say that. Uh, yeah. it, that is going to go with every single one of your systems, or are are there cases where your customers say, might say, you know, I don't really want one, or I have a use case that you know this thing isn't going to last more than three years? How do, how does that shake out on your end? Yeah, so we're we're ramping up to um, 100% integration. Um, we're not quite there yet. So uh, the two things I'll say, they are making continuous improvements to Rafti. They're kind of standardizing around and making sure that it is um, as small as can be. So you're right, the, the, the trade there is just kind of on the volume and mass side of things. Am I getting value for this? What we see is they made some really smart choices um, in the development. Um, and one of the ones that they made is that it replaces the uh, ground fueling port. It's actually a very effective ground fueling port. And so for us, we get the benefit of um, an effective ground fueling port that we can plug directly into. So even if it never refuels, we are getting some benefit out of it, which means our customer is getting benefit out of it. And we are true believers that having that you, you can never change it once you made that decision but you you know having that option is always valuable customer might say yeah, I'm, I'm never going to use that but if it's there who knows right and and if it doesn't cost them more and i don't just mean you know physical cost but you know volume uh mass if it doesn't cost them more and they have that option why not right if it makes it easier why not so um that's where we're heading and we're working with um, the team at orbit fab to, to uh make that the reality well, I'm at the end of my list of questions. Was there something I should have had on this list that I missed, or did we do a good uh, good run through of everything you've got going over there? Yeah, I think uh, you kind of hit on the big things. The mobility as a service. I mean, we're really excited. We've got some. You know, I guess that's the problem is we can't talk about all of the cool things that we have coming up yet. But we've got um, kind of like five launches scheduled for next year. Like we're, we're it's it's really going to pop here in the uh, not too distant future. So um, not to presuppose, but maybe in uh, I don't know six months or a year, there might be more stuff I can share with you. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. I'm sure uh, this was interesting to everyone out there because I learned a lot and uh, had a great time talking about all this kind of stuff. And I love the way that you're looking at the future of, of Earth orbit and beyond. So thanks again for coming on. Awesome. I really appreciate the time. Have a good one. Thanks again to Ryan for coming on the show. It was a fantastic conversation. I feel like that went places I wasn't exactly expecting it and uh, definitely learned a lot talking with him and uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. Once again, thank you all so much for your support over at managingcutoff.com slash support. Don't forget about Miko Headlines if you'd like some more podcasting and some more Anthony in your life. That's a great way to do it. 
And with that, that is all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or thoughts, hit me up on email, anthony at managingcutoff.com or on Twitter at WeHaveMiko. And until next time, I will talk to you soon.